0: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest,
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: And welcome to Leading Conversations. Good morning. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, Rajni Bakshi. Rajni is a journalist who has been working very diligently in the field of economics, She has brought to light um, a whole lot of work around what's happening in India and some of the countries in the north. She has a new book out. She's authored many books, but her most recent one is Bazaars, Conversations, and Freedom. So we're going to talk about what place the market culture has in the economy. So, Rajni, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, you reside in Mumbai, in India, but today you are in the U.S., is that correct? Oh, that's right.
3: I'm visiting family here in Seattle. Oh, great. All right. So how are you finding Seattle? Oh, it's beautiful. You know, it's the beauty of the Pacific Northwest is legendary, but to actually be in the middle of it is, is blissful, and, you know, I live in a very hot country, so for me to be in a cold place is the ultimate vacation. It's true, yeah, and And, it's just blissful. I've been—I accompanied my niece to a field trip by the uh, Puget Sound yesterday, uh, and it—it is truly blissful.
2: Yeah, it is a beautiful part of the U.S. for sure, Um, and and Seattleites would be telling you that this is very warm weather that they're having. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
3: yes, well, the weather has been particularly nice to me. I think we've had an extraordinary number of sunny days
2: since I've been here. Yes, so let's talk a bit about your background Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us how you came to be um, so interested in the economy as a place to study.
3: Well, Cheryl, my journey uh, as a professional begins in 1980 when I uh, graduated from George Washington University here in the U.S., um, my undergraduate degree actually is in political science. And uh, when I went back to India to work as a journalist, over the li- over the course of the 1980s, I was into a wide variety of movements at the grassroots where people were struggling for a more just and a more ecologically sustainable uh, model of development. And in many of those movements, and struggles. Uh, what the people were saying is that what we are being given is destruction, not development. Now, in some of these cases, uh, the people protesting were the ones who were being asked to pay the price for development. Like, uh, you know, a dam would be built, and they were the ones being submerged by it,
2: uh-huh.
3: or a mine, a coal mine, or a or a, or a steel mine. I mean, an iron mine would require them to be moved from what was in some cases ancient habitats. Uh, And and also by the late 80s, there was a powerful critique of, you know, phenomenon like the Green Revolution. And so uh, because, you know, people were dealing with depleted soils, um, dropping water tables, increasing uh, difficulties in getting drinking water And so, actually, I have been till about 95, 98, I was a chronicler of these movements. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the 90s, uh, I began to realize that unless the larger, the picture, the macroeconomic picture changes in some way, all these micro movements in some way seem to be doomed. Because while they have a powerful truth. Uh, in that the oppression that they are fighting against is very real. You know, it's not of the old-fashioned kind. Uh, by old-fashioned, I mean the 19th century kind where, you know, there are the capitalist oppressors and uh, there's the labor that is oppressed. It's much more complex. And so since about 98, I've been trying to unravel that complexity. And uh-huh. that's how I kind of, in a sense, backed or fell backwards into the sphere of uh, economics.
2: Well, and so it sounds like what you're really talking about is getting to the origins um, that created the whole practice of economics. That's right.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, as and I, uh, it was only in the late 90s, uh, as I said, when I began the work, which has now culminated in this book, Bazaar, Stations, and Freedom." It was only then that I realized that the unrest that I was witnessing at the grassroots also had its counterpart in academia, and that there has been almost two centuries of unrest within the discipline of economics. And uh, uh, in the U.S., you have scholars who call it humanist economics, and they, t- they have uh, there's a lot of uh, scholarly work on it uh and it goes back uh some of some people trace it back to the french economist Sismondi who lived at the time of the french revolution and and for uh you know the early part of the 19th century and uh, so i've developed a great interest in understanding that tradition because it gandhi mahatma gandhi in the 20th century appears uh in that line of of the uh, of of, of intellectuals uh, stream or you know intellectual tradition. So, if, and if you, I can say a little bit more about that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah,
3: go ahead and tell us more about that. I'm curious. Well, it's uh, it's an int- you see this is in a sense the fundamental uh, premise on which my current book stands, which is that bazaars and economic uh, organization of society is ancient. Uh, pretty much every. Uh, group, every society that moved beyond hunting and gathering and that settled, whether it was in just villages or urban centers or developed urban centers or not, they had some form of organized economy, which means the production of goods and services, their circulation, their exchange, and all the structures that are required to make that happen. What changes... Uh, there's and, and there's a multiplicity of forms in which this happens. The the diversity across the globe and you know across civilizations is really quite astounding. Uh, there are some common issues and some common patterns, but there's a vast variety of uh, ways in which people have approached the whole business of exchange and production and the kinds of social and political relations that grow out of it. What changes in the 18th century is the idea, and this idea takes shape in Western Europe around, around somewhat actually before the time of Adam Smith. And then Adam Smith, uh, in a sense, um, institutionalizes this idea that the economy can be separated from the rest of society. And matters relating to production and exchange and what then begins to be called political economy should be treated in a separate space, and all the ethical, moral, uh, and other normative concerns of society have to be tackled in a separate space. And that is how you get this idea, uh, which is then, uh, you know, very aggressively takes shape in the 20th century that the business of business is business. Hmm. And and if you mix it up with moral and ethical concerns, then you are going to just confuse matters, and you'll have inefficiency, and uh, 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 and in any case, the whole moral realm is so full of ambiguity. Who is to decide what is good or bad? Let it all run in a in a completely. Uh, let it be driven by supply and demand because that is more
2: scientific. Well, you know, and I, uh, the only thing that makes me think of it uh, and look at where we are today and how that has been working for us, the business of business is business has yeah. been the way Wall Street has operated and the way our whole economic system um, has operated, and so we're not doing so well now. That's right. Now, of course, uh, it's important
3: here to distinguish uh, the fact that supply and demand are, in fact, very natural processes, right? We all know that from everyday life. Yes. Uh, but it is one thing to say, for example, that... Uh, 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 okay, let me, let me illustrate it, actually, rather than being abstract about it. You know, I have seen over the years village marketplaces where you can see supply and demand operating in an almost pristine manner, uh-huh. the people who come to those the sellers know roughly what kind of stuff sells in that market and how much produce many what kinds of vegetables what kinds of fruits and what kinds of other trinkets and accessories in of everyday life people are likely to buy and that go, those goods find themselves to that market and the people who are uh, the buyers come in and, and 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 you know they buy it and price fluctuates according to What actually the the seller knows is the buyer's capacity.
2: Okay. So does that just let me interrupt? Does that have to do with whether there's competition or not? Well, you know, in many of these places there is competition,
3: uh, but it's not competition as capture. Okay. Uh, You know, it's uh, in that. For example, there could be many people selling uh, tomatoes. Uh-huh. and you will find as you walk through the market that there is pretty much a uniform price yeah it 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 finds its own level uh, okay uh, and and you know there may be somebody whose tomatoes are a little more mushed or they are of a lower quality yes you can buy those those will be cheaper so what i'm saying is that it's important to appreciate the significance of open spaces for exchange
2: uh-huh.
3: and 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 why that is so important to appreciate is that we can value and and nurture openness of exchange without giving some kind of tyrannical power to uh, the law of supply and demand. Right, right. And in fact, if you look at everyday life, uh, supply and demand is not allowed to completely govern. You know, for example... Uh, uh, as you know, there is, in the world, uh, uh, there are things that we decide to outlaw. For example, uh, there is human trafficking.
2: Yes.
3: And it is happening because somewhere there seems to be a demand. Then, therefore, there are people who supply it. But across the world, there are laws against it.
2: Uh-huh.
3: The, so this is actually easy for everybody to agree with. Right. there are very there are very few people who are saying that you know supply and demand must go beyond all uh, all laws and all sense of basic human dignity. right. The com- but what is complicated is when we say, for example, that supply and demand must fit into certain societal needs which must be met, they must be not made, captive to, or they must be not, uh, you can't make those social needs dependent on supply and demand. And in India, this issue is surfacing now in a very big way in two very basic areas of life, health and education. One set of people is saying that leave, put education in the private sector, let supply and demand determine, uh, you know, what, how things shape up. And another set of people is saying that education is a fundamental right. And, in fact, the Indian government, uh, you know, uh, had a we had a constitutional amendment some years back because it was not in our original constitution which was uh, adopted after independence. We had not listed education as a fundamental right.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: There was a constitutional amendment some years back which made education a fundamental right. So, uh, uh, some of us are saying that if, if, since education is and should be a fundamental right, how can we leave it to be sorted out by supply and demand? Because then the richer people, the better off people, will get a better education because they will pay more for it, and the poorer people will be left effectively uneducated because they will get very poor quality education.
2: So you, I want to go back to something you said about open exchange being vital in the whole market system, mm-hmm. and how would you compare that to, or, or how does the the web and, and the capacity people have to communicate um, online and through things um, like social media? How does that fit into what you're talking about?
3: It is a big Uh, a game-changer, clearly. Because now, even in the... uh, See, it has has certainly rocked conventional marketing Right. because consumers are able to talk to each other. Right. They are able to access far a greater variety of suppliers and information about goods and services. So within the uh, realm of, say, the approximately half the world's people who are in in that economy. Okay. Now, but there is a huge chunk of the world's population, and the estimate varies from 50% to 60% who are outside of this realm that you and I inhabit.
2: Right.
3: For them, this is social, all the Internet, media, etc., as yet, um, don't mean anything. However, 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 there is an enormous scope for them to benefit from the same technologies. And in fact, India is one of the places where some remarkable, talented, innovative entrepreneurs are, are doing um, some excellent work in this sphere, which is that, for example, the cell phone uh, is working wonders mm-hmm. to help people to access goods and services and information, So, uh, and you know, it it cuts across uh, different areas of life. For example, if you are a a producer, you're a farmer with a perishable product, you now, even if you have just a cell phone, you don't have internet access, it's a conventional cell phone with just the ability to make a phone call, not even access the internet, he has much better chance of being able to get competitive prices from surrounding wholesale markets than he had before. Well,
2: this is interesting,
3: and we And can I just give you one other area in in the non-market area? Uh, I have friends who work in the tribal areas of India, you know, very remote areas where the nearest doctor is very far away. They are telling me that uh, the cell phone is changing the quality of services they are able to provide because even in some of those remote areas, people have cell phones, so they bring the person in the first time you know to see the doctor in person and a lot of the subsequent referral they do on phone
4: Hmm. so in that
3: sense it's really making a difference to people's lives and so a lot of this innovative entrepreneurship that I was mentioning to you is building on this
2: new forms of connectivity well and these new forms of connectivity are happening all around the world and um, we're gonna talk more about this when we come right back
1: consulting developing leaders worldwide
4: did you know that the number one concern of american business is the ability to attract and retain qualified workers yet millions of qualified american workers with disabilities are sitting on the sidelines Disabilities at Work Radio focuses on businesses and their workforce needs and also offers other topics of interest to people with disabilities, their families, and supporters. Join Disabilities at Work Radio every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And
2: welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl F. Vito, and we're speaking with Rajni Bakshi today a journalist and an author of Bazaars, Conversations, and Freedom. Rajni, we were speaking about the whole issue of connectivity around the world and how that has um, become a game changer in many ways um, between the web in some parts of the world and even the simple cell phone in other parts of the world. Um, Has this changed the nature of bazaars and and traditional marketplaces in some areas of the world?
3: Uh, Yes, it has to a large extent. Uh, What is not yet clear is, and there's a lot of research going on about this, is to what extent it will enable greater equity. Uh, On the face of it, what little we know from changes over the last seven, eight years Definitely, it has enormous promise to bring about what I now think of as economic democracy, which means simply that there is more equality in access to information, access to resources, access to ideas, because, you know, the free flow of ideas about new innovations and what possibilities arise for you in your local area because of some innovation far away, uh, that is a very big thing. Uh, in India, and I suspect in many parts of the world, the real barriers are actually about access to resources, Mm -hmm. which, which don't automatically flow from having greater access to
2: information. Well, that's a really good point, and it makes me think about, you know, how this changes the nature not only of the marketplace, but how this changes the nature of communities. Because if people are... No longer having um, casual interactions face to face in the marketplace, um, if they have don't have the opportunity for casual conversation about what's happening in their families or in their neighborhoods, or you know having ideas exchange, et cetera, in that way, then it must really change the nature of that society or that microcosm of the society. Uh, yes uh,
3: and that's much more visible in the west in in india we are still not facing uh, we, we we've not reached that level yet and some of us hope that we are just fundamentally too gregarious for that to happen uh-huh. um uh, that it, it, and in fact even today right down to the uh, major marketplaces wholesale marketplaces say, in the rural areas, uh, while all these communication technologies are helping people to have additional information, they have not replaced the face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball bargaining that is based on bazaar. Those bazaars remain and they exist as they always have with these technologies becoming add-ons. Whether that will change in the next 10, 15 years, I am not qualified to say. So far, what I've seen and heard doesn't seem to indicate that uh, you know we will get that kind of alienating change. Uh, but I'm 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 not a futurist.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so what's your opinion of um, the countries that have moved into this um, kind of faceless, nameless? Means of exchange of information. Um, you know, what's your opinion of what's going to happen with the economy, uh,
3: Cheryl? If I may, uh, I, I, rather than uh, you know giving an opinion on it, I would like to share with you what I have observed. Okay. Uh, and in fact, that's partly what my book does. What my book Bazaar's Conversations in Freedom largely documentation Of how people in the Western world are grappling with those realities. And the most profound um, observation that I came up with was that, I mean, not my observation, it's not that my observation is profound, but the most profound effort that people are making is to reclaim community. So, for example, I tell the story of community created currencies, which have cropped up in different parts of North America, Western Europe, Australia to some extent, uh, even in Latin America. And these are fundamentally efforts to regain a sense of community along in, in the process of exchange. And here's how they work. Say, for example, the uh, most prolific one, variety of community currency, is called LETS, Local Exchange Trading Systems. Uh, it was initially uh, innovated uh by uh, a man up in Vancouver Island. His name is Michael Linton. He came up with the first um, co- uh, computer-based formula for operating these. And it's very much like uh, a checking account, except that you don't actually use the conventional dollar. Uh, all the people who join the LETS system uh, be- uh have a... The record is maintained by the computer, and as long as you're part of that system, uh, you can exchange points for goods and services, and uh, it acts not as a replacement for the conventional dollar, but a supplement. Now, in some cases, what I found in the the few places that I was able to actually visit and and learn and how it was working, uh, one of them was on Vancouver Island and the other was in England, Many of the people I interviewed said, you know, the exchange of goods is really a secondary thing for me. I'm in this because it gives me a sense of community. It gives me a chance to get to know the people in my town in ways that I don't otherwise have. Interesting. Interesting. And another form of this is the time dollar, which was innovated by Edgar Kahn, who is based in Washington, D.C. In that case, what he's done fundamentally turned time into money. And uh, there, people put in certain hours of work, and then they can trade those hours for other kinds of goods and services. And, and so again, it does community based. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. good. that's even time dollars are even more community based.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so and similarly, can, the sorry, you can bank some of your time. So that's if right. you if you do some work for somebody, mm-hmm. you, then you get credit. You get time credit for that. Is that's that right. That's I... right.
3: And they're actually called time banks. I'm I'm glad you used the word. They're actually called time banks. And in and there's a they're working all over the U S. and even in England. In England, the government is supporting them. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the I R S uh, has declared them to be a social phenomenon. So. Uh, the IRS looked into the matter and declared this to be outside the market economy. And so, you, if you are working with a time bank, that syst- whatever exchange happens in, within the time bank system cannot be taxed. Really? Well, you see, because most of the services that time banks were facilitating would uh, would otherwise fall on the state to fund. Ah. And and Edgar Kahn makes a very very important point here. The lovely illustration that he uses, he says, see, if your neighbor, your disabled neighbor, needs help with you know the cleaning of the house, particularly toilets or something, you will be you will not be willing to go and do that for a ten dollar payment in the conventional dollar. You it will you know you'll you'll feel it's benial, it's menial work or it's beneath your dignity she will not be willing to have you come and do it free because then she feels she's obligated to you. Mm -hmm. But if you did it with a time dollar scheme, it suddenly takes on a different complexion and then you can give those time dollars to granny across town and she can get a ride to the doctor. Somebody will come and drive her to the doctors using that same time dollar. How interesting. Yeah. So they're very flexible. They are very flexible. And by the way, the most uh, powerful way in which they've been used in the Washington, D.C. area is in the juvenile court system. Really? Yeah. Uh, Edgar Kahn was able to work with the juvenile uh, court system to say that all non-violent first-time offenders, when they are convicted, should not be sent to prison, but that they should be asked to do community work, and be paid for it by time
2: dollars. Oh. So, so it makes them more beholden to the community. It, a, it puts them in
3: the middle of the community, and the same work, say, for example, cleaning a yard, which they would never do for the kind of money that they could make in conventional dollars because the other their peer group would make fun of them. They can make far more money peddling drugs. Right, right, right. But but when they when they do that work and trade it for time dollars, which and then they've you know a whole network exists and there's a large infrastructure. Enough time dollars, they can then cash them for a second-hand computer or something. The whole picture changes.
2: That makes a lot of sense, and also um, when I think about how most community service. For people who have um, convictions, most community service is not paid, and so already they're ahead of the game because they're getting something. They're probably made to feel more valued themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And
3: there's another interesting uh, detail on this. These systems, similar systems, have been working in Japan for many years because, oh, as you know, there's, a, uh, there's a quite an imbalance in Japan of older people who need help and assistance.
2: Yeah.
3: Now, they find they've, there's some research which shows that the commercially paid assistance that those old people get is often of a lower quality than the one that they get in these kind of time banking systems hmm. from younger people. Interesting. So, in in the U.S., in the be? U.S., go ahead. Sorry. Uh, HMOs are applying it. Oh. Uh, In fact, the most famous one is in New York um, um, that I interviewed in person, the person who was running the scheme. And it was, uh, uh, you know, they they just sort of piggyback it on the HMOs uh, system. And a lot of their members are able to help each other through the time banking system Um, And in fact, they've had data to show that, for example, it results in fewer hospitalizations because people are able to get help in time. You know, they don't get that sick um, and, and all kinds of ways in which it actually translates into benefits that can be calculated in conventional dollar and cent terms
2: well i I can see how this can be so useful, and there are so many um reasons to do this and I also imagine that they're um given the sense of individual um uh, what can I call it, an in, individual sense of entitlement. That you, you can be an individual. You don't have to be accountable to a community. But that kind of person may not be real comfortable in this kind of a system. That kind of a person may um, want more anonymity. That's it. true. That's true.
3: Um, and, and, but, you know, the whole system is catering to that person in any case. The person who seeks an, an, uh, anonymity and is uncomfortable in community at least in the western world, there's a lot of spaces for them today
2: mm-hmm.
3: oh yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, it is It is those who are uh, 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 seeking community that benefit more from this. But there's another thing that it does, which is, uh, in fact, the title of Edgar Kahn's book that he wrote on this whole work that he did, uh, which is No More Throwaway People.
2: Talk about that.
3: Well, I'll give you an example from the uh, interview I did at the HMO in New York. Uh, There was a person he was a war veteran, and he was um, homebound. He was on a wheelchair, so when he was approached by the time banking system, he said, "But you know, what can I offer in exchange? You know, I I'm, I'm I'm I need a lot of services from other people, but how do I earn time dollars?" And then they figured out that he had a real knack for being able to talk to people over the phone. So he was, you know, uh, he began to do all kinds of counseling and hand holding and reaching out to people. As a friend and as a member of the community. And that's how he earned time dollars.
2: And and people who may not have been willing to pay for that in the traditional way may be more willing to that's engage in that in this that's way. That's right. That's right. And of
3: course remember many of them don't have the traditional money. The rather let's say traditional dollar. They don't have it to to use. Sure. So uh, uh, even if they were uh, willing to seek professional help, they may not have been able to because they don't have conventional dollars. But the most important thing here is actually not measurable either by time dollars or by conventional dollars, which is the shift from a person who, because of whatever unfortunate circumstances, was feeling useless Uh. and a burden to others begins to feel like a productive and useful person. That's the sense of empowerment and the shift in the sense of self-esteem and dignity which comes from that
2: is immeasurable. This is, this could be revolutionary. What, What do you think it's going to take for this to become more widespread?
3: Well, you know, I used to think that it's it's more widespread, but I was quite amazed that uh, I was in D.C. last week, and um, Edgar, you I know, mean, I always catch up with Edgar Khan when I'm there, and uh, a friend had invited me to a gathering, kind of a social, semi-social gathering about a book release, where many people from the administration and lawyers and lobbyists, uh, the main track of Washington, D.C., they were present at that gathering. And I was amazed at how many of them had never heard of Edgar.
2: Yes, yeah. I am not surprised. This is not mainstream conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, Chapter
3: 3 is entirely about this. It's about these kinds of different money systems and how they work and more than that the challenge to the imagination which they are you know throwing up and so for example one of my um my missions back in india at the moment is that i'm bullying my friends and i mean that seriously i am bullying them my friends in microfinance to say that you know that was part one of a very necessary story that uh, in using the conventional money microfinance has reached out to people who were completely left out of the financial system. But how and when do we take it to the next stage, which is to ask what parts of the process of exchange can be dealt with by other systems of of sharing information about value. See, we have taken money for granted for so long. Taken it for granted in the sense that, you know, we treat it like as though it were a natural phenomenon. It's not. It's it's Mm, human-made. And it's a product of history. And over the years, uh, uh, it has been taken for granted that banks and governments have the right to make money, and that's it. Nobody else can tamper with that. But as you know, banks are now in deep
2: disrepute,
3: and uh, the monopoly of governments to make money, I mean, sorry, to create money, uh, literally, out of thin air, uh, is also in disrepute. So I'm hoping that there will be more and more people um, uh, looking at this seriously and, and working with it. One of the uh, most imaginative people here is is a Belgian um a economist and banker his name is Bernard Leotard he oh, yes. has you may have heard of him in fact you may have had him on your show at some point uh, yes <laughs> uh, I would I would be I, in fact I was trying to look up what Bernard may have to say about the current European crisis but I wasn't able to find anything on the internet so I'm going to send him an email and and ask for his views. But in fact, what is unfolding in Europe just now and what happened here in 2008 in the U.S. uh, is all predicted in his book, The Future of Money, which he wrote back in
2: 2000. Right, 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 right. Well, and and the the whole idea that um, we need to be in conversation around what new economic systems could look like um, is a big idea, and it's something that I don't think very many people are looking at. We're going to talk more about that when we come back for this next segment.
4: And Wellness Network.
1: The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back, this is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Rajni Bakshi today. Rajni, um, in the last segment, we, we got to the point where we were talking about that the conversation that is not being had around the world very much is the conversation around what new economic systems we could be living in that could be created, that could be different. You know, there's a lot of talk today uh, in the U.S. and in the European systems because of what's been going on for the last couple of years with the markets, um, that there needs to be a new way of doing things. And so people are tinkering, governments are tinkering with what is and not um, doing anything to change or to completely redesign economic system speak to that a little bit uh,
3: the challenge within the economics discipline uh, as I mentioned earlier is is actually very old uh, and perhaps the most remarkable uh, and profound critique in the last century came from E.F. Schumacher and you know in 1973 that Small is Beautiful was published and my own assessment is that Schumacher's work has actually accelerated much more over the last ten years. For example, in two thousand, some students at the Sorbonne in in, in France uh, actually issued a kind of uh, a revolt, and they called economics a form of autism. And that resulted in a network which is, uh, has some, I think, 7,000 web-based members uh, from within economics, professors and students across the world, and they call themselves the Post-Autistic Economics Network. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and they're using the word autism in a very clinical way. They're saying that what is being taught currently as econom- in the, under the, you know, the guise of economics is out of sync with reality. It has serious cognitive impairment. Now, this has been happening somewhat on the margins. Okay. On the other hand, you have, uh, I mean, alongside you have had more hand, grassroots kind of engagement by entities like the New Economics Foundation, in based out of London, who are direct inheritors of Schumacher's legacy. But. What is very important to note at the moment is that now the unrest has arrived at the mainstream of the discipline. Uh, Just last month, uh, there was a conference at Cambridge on new economic thinking, and it was organized by a new institute, in fact. I think it's called the Institute for New Economic Thinking which has been sponsored largely by George Soros, and it's based out of New York, and its uh, members and um, you know, the people who are engaged in this include stars like Joseph Stiglitz, Jeffrey Sachs, and a whole host of very big names in conventional mainstream economics. Um, and basically, they are grappling with that very fundamental question which you asked, that... Uh, what is wrong with the discipline that A could not predict uh, the meltdown of 2008, and B uh, having uh, is now not able to really give any major insights on how to address it. Uh, and I am uh, very excited about the space in between. You know, so on the one hand, you still the radicals have been doing their work, but they've been on the margins. Now people in the mainstream are also rethinking. Uh, and uh, I'm very excited to see what happens in the space between the radicals and the mainstream rethinking. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't pay much attention to the conventional orthodoxy uh, who are, I'm hoping, over the next few years will become more and more marginal. But they are very much there, and at the moment, they're still in power. Uh, mm-hmm you know and, and 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 the orthodoxy is saying look everything is fine the system works but you know every any system has imperfections and so we're just in the middle of a blip that's the orthodox view
2: right right well do you, what where does the change have to occur in order for there to be a tipping point uh uh you know the um, the person who edits the post
3: autistic economics networks journal um and you'll forgive me for the moment i can't remember his name mm-hmm. he made a very interesting observation he says that we are we are finding that our some of our um the, the books that they are producing are selling very much very well among younger people students of economics and the younger faculty and, and so I'm reminded of something that Marilyn Ferguson said in her book, "The Aquarian Conspiracy," oh. that number one, a paradigm can never be seen to be seen. you only know it in retrospect, right that a paradigm shifted. And the other is that a large part of that shift involves the old guard simply withering away, you know, mm. people just getting old and, and dying. Right. And then the younger people, the newer people who replace them, uh, have thought
2: differently from, from childhood. Well, we have our, our entire system is set up around this old way of doing If you think about how what we teach in college and university, we teach people not just the system, but to, we prepare them to walk into that system and perpetuate okay. that system. And so it sounds like, you know, not only the system itself would have to change, but all the pieces around it would have to change. That, that,
3: that is very complex. And, 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 and I am the last person to make any prediction on how it will go, uh, except that uh, to build upon every single sign of hope and even the most infinitesimal shift. You know, for example, uh, Ben Bernanke, am I pronouncing the name right? Yes,
2: yes.
3: He was recently called to give the commencement address, I think, at the University of South Carolina. It's one of the Carolinas. And, you know, his whole commencement address is about the economics and happiness. (laughs) And he is talking about all the work that has been happening over the last few years to show that – uh, increasing degrees of uh, monetary affluence and luxury and, you know, material affluence is not making people happier. Right. And he's he, at least he's talking about it. And right. that's as mainstream as you can get. Right. right. And, you know, for example, I found it very heartening that when Bill Gates started talking about a creative capitalism, now it's very easy to... Uh, you know, to dismiss that and and to to make it look like it's insignificant. But on the contrary, I think that no matter how much uh, uh, a radical will still have to agree with Bill Gates, the fact that he is saying that what we have as the old form of capitalism is not working, that's a very
2: significant shift. Right, 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 yeah. It's, uh, and, yet, it, and yet he was... Yeah. Very successful because of that system, and you know what is it that besides having more money than he can ever spend in his entire lifetime, what is it that would um, be the the advantage to him, or would be the inspiration to him to want that system to change?
3: Yeah, that's a complicated matter. Uh, but can I, give it, can I offer an illustration which is very much on my mind these days? Because I'm reading the biography of Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yes. I find it fancy. Many people have made, um, have ridiculed Jefferson for um, writing the Declaration of Independence while he was a slave owner.
2: While he was a slave owner.
3: Okay. Yes.
2: But, I, you know, I think that,
3: see, we are all born into a system. That's not something we chose. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, and how we expand the challenge within that system is something that we can choose. So, for example, I'm fascinated to discover that as early as 1760, in a case that he's arguing while he's still working as a lawyer, Thomas Jefferson makes the argument that human beings are born free at a time when the idea is completely alien. Mm. Wow. And everybody around him thinks that it's perfectly legitimate for certain human beings to be well not be human not be treated as human. Mm. And that he did in fact put in a clause against slavery in the first the draft he wrote of the Declaration of Independence. I didn't know this till I read this book. It was taken out. Mm. And the rest is history that it takes what another 60 70 years.
2: Right. Right. To deal
3: with that, and and so I think one, it's it's a very, uh, it's a very fine balance that we we have to each of our struggles in our own lives to strike a balance between the long term vision and the patience for it, and a short term restlessness so that we don't get complacent and you know go that extra mile in our everyday lives. So you have to be patient about the long-term prospects and know that it's a very long struggle and it's a long process of transition, and yet work very passionately and, uh, you know, uh, with a sense of urgency in the here and now.
2: So what is it that individuals can do to make a difference? Well, my own
3: personal motto there is that pessimism is for better times. So the first thing is that... Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Say that again. <laughs> pessimism, pessimism is for better times. Better time. well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, the things are just simply too grim. We don't have the luxury of being pessimistic. Ah. I like that. Uh, yeah. So the first um, I mean, I can only share with you, uh, you know, what I uh, attempt to do, uh, and so which is that um, you look for that uh, uh, the glimmer of hope, and work with it, work to expand it, and for me personally, a large part of that has meant looking for possibilities of change in unlikely places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, that the possibility of transition and transformation is perpetual. Mm. And in this, I have, of course, uh, you know, a huge uh, inspiration from Mahatma Gandhi. Mm. Uh, but I'm also very much drawn to the work of Teilhard de Chade and I, you'll forgive me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, uh, the French Jesuit priest and paleontologist. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the book Phenomenon of Man?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh and he his work um, is finds a very interesting echo from our uh, from a mystic who lived and in, in fact at the exactly at the same time in India, Sri Aurobindo, and both of course, Shardam was himself a mystic. Both of them are broadly saying that the human species is evolving.
2: Well, and the human species is evolving and we have choices and we are almost out of time for our show today. So um, I love what you said, looking for the possibility of change in unlikely places. And my sense is that your book will help people to think more about that Bazaar's Conversations and Freedom, which people can access via um, Penguin Books or Amazon.com. Ranji, it's been great having you here with us today. And um, if people want to know more about you, where can they do that? Uh, The website of my book is
3: www.bazaarsconversationsfreedom.com. I just, Bazaar. in the website, the and has been dropped. Otherwise, these three words are there. Bazaars, Conversations, Freedom.com.
2: Great. Well, I know people and, are going to be very, very interested. Your work is um, really, I think, on the forefront. And uh, we uh, need... Thank you
3: very much for inviting me. And I, I value this opportunity to
2: speak with you. Well, I'm so glad you were here today. And uh, we look forward to having another reading Conversations with you at some point down the road. So remember everyone to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.